Ciao amici, welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today we'll be talking about Luchino Visconti's 1971 film, Death in Venice, and we have a special guest with us today, John. Ciao. <laughs> Hello, Stephen, thank you for having me on. Uh, John, thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can do that. Uh, so... My name is John Labager, and I am the host of Film Baby Film. It's um, it's a, a movie podcast that is underneath the uh, I'm associated with the 25th Frame Media guys. So, like anybody that listens to Criterion now or The Magic Lantern, or you listen to Good Times Great Movies. Wait, did I say that backwards? Is it Great Times Good Movies? <laughs> oh no, you're right. Good Times Great. Yeah, movies. Yeah, so Good Times Great Movies and Doug and yeah and all those people uh, associated with um a little network of just really ardent film fans and amateur podcasters. I don't know if you could call them amateurs. Many of them are so good and so polished. I, um, you know, they sound like professional, but absolutely listener supported podcast, no sponsors and just people that are really excited about movies. And uh, I'm excited to, to chat with you on, on, on your podcast, even this is, this is thrilling. I love Italian cinema. When it sounds like you know a thing or two about Visconti. Yeah, so um, so you're out on the West Coast. Here in the East Coast, the, the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Harvard Film Archive here in Cambridge, uh, they did this summer a uh, Lucchino Visconti retrospective. They brought over a lot of prints from... From the European mainland that do not even exist, like, in the borders of the U.S. Um, they brought over a lot of prints. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they did. Like, I think the print of Ludwig that they brought over, there's no print like that in the U.S. And, in fact, I think, I don't know if it's an Austrian print or a German print or an Italian print, but whoever is responsible for that that print didn't want to send it to the U.S. for, like, the last 14 years because, apparently, some the last time they sent a print of Ludwig over it got ruined <laughs> so but no so th- the point is is that this summer has really just been a Visconti summer for people that live in those cities and even people outside of those cities I mean the Film Society of Lincoln Center is like one of the driving forces behind uh, repertory programming across the country and people really look to them and look to the Harvard Film Archive probably lesser but still, like the fact that these guys were running it, uh, the Film Society said this was their most successful retrospective ever. And that's kind of oh, surprising wow. to me because it's like when you think of Italian filmmakers here in the U.S. at least, I think up until this summer, Visconti was basically left off that list, right? Like you think Fellini, you think Antonioni, and then Rossellini, um, uh you know, and then probably you get to Bertolucci, although maybe some people think of him more as like a more as like a European. But, you know, you, and then Lena Vertmuller um, has had has received some love recently. But I feel like Visconti was this like great legendary filmmaker. They think a lot of people sort of left him off that list. And I don't think people can do that anymore. And um, and now, of course, Death in Venice getting released by the Criterion Collection. We are living in the era of Visconti. Like, this is a Visconti resurgence. Absolutely. Even here in L.A., um, it might still be going on, but at the Egyptian Theater, which is right near Grauman's Chinese Theater, they're having a big retrospective for Visconti right now. And I know Ludwig was one of them, so I wonder if it's that, like, hot print you were talking about. Oh, that's awesome. Um, But, yeah, he's made his way to the West Coast, too. 
I love it. Yeah, no. And uh, Visconti was... So I'm just like everybody else, uh, you know, American film fans that start. You basically you start with the Italian American filmmakers, and then at some point you get introduced to Eight and a Half. And Eight and a Half was my first great Italian film. And probably even though I love Visconti, and Visconti is, I think at this point, uh, not only one of my favorite, you know, he's one of my favorite Italian. He is my favorite Italian director, and one of my favorite directors. Period. Um, but nonetheless, like nothing really compares to eight and a half. And so that was my introduction. Um, and then I saw the leopard at home. That was, that was my first introduction. Even before this retrospective, I saw the leopard and that melted my brain. I just didn't know you could make a movie that big and that beautiful. Um, and that chock full with like historical details and, and costume and design and architecture and, just shooting on location in a way that was just like so luxurious and to have a movie that has really great action set pieces but then to have the major set piece be a 45 minute long ball sequence that's when I knew like okay so I'm in the hands of a total master um so yeah no I'm just I'm just so fortunate to uh to get into this and Death in Venice, I have an interesting history with Death in Venice. My love for this movie is well-earned. It was not an immediate, it was not a love at first sight. I did not view this as Gustav saw Tadzio and just immediately fell in love with this movie. <laughs> it's been upon re-watching and thinking about it and reading about it that um, this is now like, this was, I had the discussion before I rewatched this film that this is one of my least favorite Viscontis and now it is in my in my like upper echelon of uh, his many masterpieces. So I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Oh, well, that's awesome. I'm excited to have you here to talk about it with us. Just kind of to dig into a high level synopsis of what Death in Venice is about. Um, we have an aging composer, Aschenbach, visiting Venice who encounters a young boy at the hotel he's staying at and be he becomes totally obsessed and infatuated with him. And throughout the whole film, it's kind of an exploration of the purity of purity and art set against the ticking time clock of age and decay, where we have this young boy who the professor's infatuated with sort of representing purity, while the professor himself is aging, decaying, and the city around him is doing the same. So it's, it feels less kind of plot driven and more this theme unfolding and sort of decomposing before our eyes. Oh, no question. This is... <laughs> This is, yeah, to say that this is not a plot-driven movie is one of the great understatements of all time. I mean, it's essentially, it's essentially a silent film. There's so little dialogue. There's so little action. And this is from a director who is just like operatic, sweeping history. You know, the big, uh, all the big stuff, whether it's uh, on the historical level of, of, of war and of... Um, you know, changing class structures to the even the family level, just the most, you know, the most intense interactions that human beings can have, all the taboos, all the big, most dramatic things happen in Visconti films. And this film, essentially, nothing happens <laughs> right up until the end. I mean, it is just a, but at the same time, it also is, uh, it also is, uh, 
it is what Visconti wanted to do. It does capture that sense of a combination of music and of architecture and of just textures in general um, to give you this uh, emotional impact. Um, uh, whereas in so many of his movies, he adds melodrama to that mix. Here, it's the opposite. It is. It's he's totally focused on theme and tone, and and uh, I just think it's I think it's wonderful. If you if you can get down with that, this is this is pretty wonderful. Absolutely. And in a way, it's almost a good... When I first saw The Leopard, for instance, I found it really challenging to keep up with because at that point I wasn't very familiar with the history of reunification and what the political context was. So I kept pausing it and looking up on Wikipedia, wait, what's going on? What am I supposed to know that an Italian audience would know during this time? Whereas Death in Venice, you know, it's hard to call it accessible, but you don't need to come in prepackaged with an understanding of the time and place. Anyone can walk into it and get a sense of what's going on and what the story, what story is being told. Right. Yeah, no. And we, so I'm just going to insert this here so that we can get on with the rest of the podcast. Now, the relationship that's in this movie is, you know, it's not just taboo. It's illegal. It's, you know, it's like a very older man falls in love with, the the actor is 15 years old in the movie but he sh- he certainly looks a lot younger and i think the history behind this with Mahler's actual event it sounds like the person who that this the young boy that this uh novella is based off of was a 10 year old boy so this relationship you talk about accessibility like right off the bat the relationship is like a razor blade it's whenever you see a you know somebody shaving in a movie you're always like ooh are they going to cut themselves <laughs> and so this movie gives you pretty early on like hey we're playing with live ammo here um even though there oh, sure. nothing actually explodes you're never really allowed to settle into the film as soon as that aspect of it. And I mean, even before that, when just the introduction of just how sickly Gustav von Aschenbach is, uh, you're never really allowed to settle into the film. But as soon as you realize that this wildly inappropriate relationship is the core of the film, it's, you know, like you're always on, you're never allowed to just settle into what otherwise would be like a relatively beautiful (laughs) A relatively beautiful <laughs> movie, and I find that that to be like a very interesting way to structure the movie and to keep uh, to keep my attention. For sure, maybe an inaccess- accessibility was the wrong <laughs> word to use. I meant more. You don't you don't need like a PhD in Italian history to get into no, it. No, no, there. <laughs> you. Do- I wouldn't say it's like a rom com. Definitely, <laughs> it's not easy to. Watch. You definitely don't need to like know the different colors of the different. Oh man, it's more confusing than Game of Thrones, no question. When you watch The Leopard, there are so many different, so many different <laughs> colors of uniforms, and even the you know uh, the side of the unification has like three different parties involved in it, and Tancredi switches parties. Yeah, no, The Leopard is much more involved uh, plot-wise. Uh, this though is, you know, it, getting all the subtleties and nuances that happened, all the color that happens. Um, that's where that's where the interest in this movie comes in and the complexity comes in. For sure. And I know it's kind of a trope to say, to describe setting as a character, but in a film with so little dialogue, but so much setting and mood, Venice 100% feels like a character in this. There, And it's so... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. There are two... You know, there are three words in the title. 
<laughs> two of them, two of them are like relevant ones, you know, death and Venice. And we're going to see both de- a, a death in Venice, spoiler alert. And you're also going to see, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here because you put this in your notes, but I'm stealing it from you, death of Venice, um, both in terms of the cholera that's going to come, but also Venice is, Venice is this amazing, beautiful city that is made more beautiful by its decay, by the fact that it is, all cities are temporary, but no city is more temporary than, you know, one that is sinking a little bit every year into the, into the mud. And it's like funny to watch because I think, you know, certainly I have a very romantic vision of what Venice is and kind of what Italy is in general and the very first impressions of Venice as Aschenbach is coming into town, it's disgusting. The waters are muddy and gross. Um, There's like the shrill sounds of like industry from like the steamships that he's riding into town. There's like the glopping sounds of the water as he's riding a gondola. Everything is like a harsh sensory experience. It is not this lush, beautiful landscape that I think you would often think of when you think of Venice. It's almost like an attack yeah, on your senses. That, yeah, and, you know, um, that certainly comes to play in some of the discussions you'll see with Alfred and Gustav, uh, just that that discrepancy between idealized beauty, um, sort of like this Hegelian sense, this German sense of beauty from the soul and from mathematical and logical rigor, versus this other more tactile i don't even know if it's beauty but this this sensory experience that while it may be harsh it may have an element of decay on some level there is no genuine beauty without you know without taking into account reality and so that's certainly the juxtaposition of those two things the idealized and the rational versus um i don't know the romantic and and the, uh, you know, the, the Baudelaire versus, um, you know, in the more Baudelaire perspective, I think that is a big part of what this movie is. And I think it was a very specific decision by Visconti not to show a romanticized version of Venice. And to show that, you know, not the, not the beautiful pastel colors and the, you know, the bridge of size, but instead to show... Um, to show the decay, to show uh, the industry, to show, you know, did all this talk about disease and, and, and ashes burning. Um, yeah, no, I think that that was a very specific decision. For sure. And what do you think the end goal of that decision is? Like, what is the so what of portraying the city this way? Oh, gosh. So, so where do we begin? So... So I've read the book and I've seen the movie as well. I finally read the novella. I think it was like assigned a couple of times <laughs> when I was in co- when I was in high school and I just never actually read it, which is silly. The the novella is like I, it's not very long. You can read it in a couple of days. Um and there are a number of discrepancies that I think really highlight this. So the discussions between Alfred and Gustav right? Those exist only in this film. Alfred never shows up in the book. And I think the discussions that they have are Visconti's way of, of sort of saying, this is, you know, there are different versions of beauty. There's, uh, there's the beauty that Gustav believes in, which is 
soul and spirit and pure and like a platonic ideal that exists outside of the world and outside of the experience of the senses. And then Alfred, his his friend, and I think there's a lot of sexual tension between the two of them in this. I think they he Alfred would like to be Gustav's lover. Um, but you see them arguing back and forth really heatedly because Alfred's saying, no, that's ridiculous. Like, real beauty comes, you know, the most beautiful rose is that which only blooms once. Like, the fact that things are dying, the fact that things do become sick, the fact that things are temporary, that's what makes them beautiful. Um, you can't have... You can't have the light without the dark. And I think this is something that Visconti has internalized throughout his entire career. And uh, Visconti was a huge fan of this novella. He was a huge fan of Mont, Thomas Mann in general, but a huge fan of this novella and just carried the book around with him from, you know, the 1930s. When people met him in the 1930s, he would have his copy of Death in Venice on him. And I think that that idea of the relationship between the body politic and, you know, the actual architectural bodies as well as the human body, that relationship goes throughout his movies. Um, you know, anybody that's seen Ludwig and the decay of the, of the monarch uh, in that, both in terms of the decay of his personal power and his sanity, but also the decay of um, the monarchy's influence over Bavaria— uh, you know, you know when you're seeing a Visconti film that you're going to see a coupling between the two. So I think that he wanted to show Venice as this very beautiful, very romantic city, um, which it still is, even in this movie, but also show that uh, the underbelly of that, show the decay in it, and show, um, you know, the fact that Gustav is going to finally, I feel like Gustav, like, finally, truly gets access to a certain kind of beauty. Uh, in the world and it's right as his body is decaying and it is in this place that is decaying and dying as well and so I think that that's sorry that's a very long-winded version of saying I genuinely believe that this is like a uh, like the cornerstone of Visconti's um, belief system uh, and I think I think death in Venice isn't isn't just an example of his belief system I think it f forms the core of his belief system. I think the fact that this theme exists throughout so many of his movies comes from his lifelong love of this novella. Oh, wow. So this is a theme <laughs> so that you see. No, I love that. So this is a theme that you see in all of his works, but it, it seems to come... Like, does it feel it's most pure or most explicitly formed here in this one? Oh, that's that's a real tough one. I mean, it's it's distilled. That's that's the way I would say it. I would say it's his most distilled version mm. of it. And is it the most traumatic? I don't know. Ludwig's Ludwig's decay is pretty harsh. Um, but this one, the the decay that happens to this man, it's so interesting because he is. My personal belief is that people uh, need access to both their like um, their rational side and their irrational side of their you know their good angel and the little devil on their shoulder. I believe that in order like to lead a full life, uh, you need to have access to both of those things. And this is a man, um, uh, Gustav von Aschenbach, the character in this. This is a man who fully locks up 
one side of his personality. And you can see those in the discussions with Alfred. And Alfred is saying, like, look, man, the reason why your some of your art and some of your music is suffering is because you're not accessing your full personality. And he is doing everything he can. Gustav von Aschenbach is doing everything he can to fight against that. That equilibrium, that balance, isn't really an equilibrium or a balance. It's just locking up a part of his personality. And what's sad, but what's also beautiful about this film is that as he goes through that journey of like getting access to that part of himself, he's doing it in a way... He, I don't know if it's leading to his downfall or if it is only coming at the time of his downfall, of his decay. Um, but he, like, yeah, he just goes all in. You know, um, one of the takeaways from this film and another just theme throughout Visconti is, you know, people just, people make choices to destroy themselves for a whole host of reasons. The fatal flaw in almost all of Visconti's major heroines and he, primarily heroes, but also heroines, uh, is, is their choice to, like double down on some irrational destructive thing and uh, here Gustav knows that the town uh, that Venice is sick and that he is sick and that if he stays there there's going to be an elevated chance that he's going to die but um, I think because he's having this bursting forth of you know this part of this per- this part of his personality that he locked up for so long um, I don't know if it's his homosexuality in general that he had locked up. I don't know if it was, you know, this very specific, you know, one-off. I think this is the first time he's ever seen, like, a man this age and, like, fallen for him. Like, this is whatever's going on inside of him. Like, this hits him all at once. And there's some relationship between that and his self-destruction. And that is like tragic it's all but it's also like that's what opera is like that's there's a beauty in you know Romeo and Juliet the idea of the fatal romance um I think because most people that live through their romances get very bored at a certain point and so there's something there's something romantic about you know I have this fleeting romance or this intense passionate passionate romance and you know everybody dies at the end because then you don't have to grow up and deal with taxes and paying the bills and stuff so (laughs) so yeah no i i i I totally think that this is this is an important part of visconti's philosophy and um and yeah whether or not it's his i i do i think that this is like his best distillation of that making that relationship as obvious as possible just showing just through music and setting and um the way that he shoots the film rather than, you know, a ton of dialogue or through, like, historical analogy. Well, and it's interesting you bring up rationality and steering away from that for this kind of passionate, albeit irrational, you know, immoral infatuation. Um, Kind of a device that I'd sort of clung on to while watching the movie was him and his luggage or his trunks. Yeah. Um, You know, that's probably a good, you know, throughout the movie when he first comes into town, he's determined to take the water bus, even though he's told, well, they're not going to be able to take your luggage. He's like, I don't care. I'm taking the water bus. And then kind of midway through the movie, he's planning to leave. um, And he's asked to leave during his breakfast. And he becomes upset that he's interrupted. He demands that his trunks be sent off ahead of him. He'll catch the train after his meal. And so even though he's displaced from home, he's in a foreign place in a foreign city, 
rationally, he should want to keep an eye on his stuff, but he's almost going out of his way to be detached from that sense of stability and that familiarity, possibly because he wants to open himself to whatever is going on right now in Venice, or he wants to detach himself from representations of his old self and his old life. Maybe it's both of them, but it, he just makes it clear he doesn't want to be kind of weighed down by these elements of his old self. No, that's so insightful. And I think that that idea was sort of was sort of playing around the edges of my mind the few times I watched it. But hearing you talk about that, it just it really resonates. That is I totally think that that's what's going on. Um, interestingly enough, so the first time we see his luggage, right, is as he's getting off that steamship going into Venice, he's going to get picked up by a gondolier. Um, and we should probably talk about the gondolier in a second. But when he's getting off that boat, that, that, like that, I don't even know what the word foppish means, but I think that that old man with all the makeup, (laughs) that's the drunk old man with the makeup that sort of harasses him before he gets off. I think that he's the definition of a foppish old man. Um, that is so like that is the entire time you're watching Gustav on that ship. It sort of feels like he's already dying, right? He looks like an old man sitting in his chair waiting to die as he's on that boat. And then when he so the first time that I see the trunk, the luggage, it says GVB and it's this big, beautiful, ornate luggage. It's when he's just about to get off. And that's when he gets confronted by that foppish old man. And the guy does like his. His Ides of March foreshadowing, where first of all, uh, he's an old man trying to look younger, uh, which clearly is going to be something that's going to be relevant to Gustav. Oh, that's a good <laughs> Gustav point. Gustav on uh, 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 near future. Um, in addition, like he does, he appears like a lascivious and creepy. Um, and then he says he's he's drunk and he just starts like rambling on and he says something about your sweetheart your sweetheart and it's like oh man best wishes to your little sweetheart yeah i wrote that down because i thought that's a weird thing to say well because i think on some level there is a way that this movie works where he's already and this is not my actual reading of it but i think that this is all this is sort of signifying um Aschenbach is going to some form of the afterlife like he's entering a new realm where mm people on the ship know what his future is going to be. And then when he gets in the gondolier and we get a mention of this trunk and this luggage again, um, uh, when he gets in the, the, when he gets in the gondolier, the uh, very mysterious relationship with the gondolier um, captain. And the whole time I'm just sitting there, I'm like, man, is this, is this, uh, is this the guy from Greek mythology? Was it Charon or Karen? Is this like the river sticks that he's going through? Is he going to his death already? Um, and so, yeah, no, the luggage and, and that stuff all sort of hit me right off the bat. But the luggage, I was sort of wondering, like, what? Why is he so thoughtful with his, so thoughtless with his luggage? And it never really stuck on me. But yeah, absolutely, he's trying to get rid of old baggage, and in ways that he doesn't even really know. Like, he's not intentionally doing any of this stuff. He just, whenever it comes up, he just doesn't, you know, he just doesn't care. It's a very thoughtful insight. I really like that. Well, now that you mentioned Greek mythology, I want to like reread Dante's Inferno in terms of like, you know, if Venice is the afterlife, I bet there's a bazillion things you can read into that in terms of mirroring 
all the circles of hell. Well, more and, how... and more importantly, Dante fell in love with a young idealized woman named Beatrice. Beatrice guides him. No, absolutely. And I'm so glad. I never remember to talk about Dante in terms of this movie, but there's no question. That's yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I just I, I cut you off because I just got so excited. Um, you too. Yeah, you're you're blowing me away here, Stephen. I like this. No, not at all. Hey, you can find Dante's Inferno in anything if you try hard enough. Well, especially in a, a nice little Italian film with death in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, G- G- Gustav and Aschenbach. What a what a what an enigma that guy is, huh? I mean, what's what's his deal? Like, why is he? What is going on with him? So the flashbacks. Um. The flashbacks are he had a disastrous release of one of his compositions. He is devastated. He has a bad heart. He um and and sadly like his his daughter has passed away young. And so what is going on with him? Is he in mourning because is he just really physically sick? Is he uh physically sick and he's in mourning? Is he having a is he having like a really intense version of a midlife crisis? Is it all of these things? Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, but whatever it is, it's clearly weighing him down pretty heavily as he comes into, as he enters Venice. Well, and I don't want to speculate because looking at the novella as one piece and the film as another, but from the novella at least, you get a sense of what, what happened between him and the wife. Like, why is he in Venice? And the wife is not there. Well, it's okay. So totally a switch between the two, right? In the novella, it isn't a daughter that dies. It's so. I do you mind if we do like a little a little historical background on the entire? Yeah. So let's let's just get into it. So Mahler uh, in the movie is uh, constantly around, right? The character is a composer, um, and uh, lots of Mahler's um, the fourth movements of Mahler's third. And Fifth Symphonies, the fourth movement of the Fifth Symphony is often called the Adagi... You, you're going to pronounce this better. Adagietto? Oh, Adagio. Adagio. Oh, no, it's the special. Not the Adagio. It's the special. It's the Adagietto or something like that. The mini, the junior one. <laughs> and so and so, there's Mahler constantly around. Plus, this guy's name is Gustav. The character's name is Gustav. And where that comes from is, in real life, Thomas Mann, the author, the German, you know, the famous author... He was uh, devastated by Mahler's death, um, and and Thomas Mann actually went on a trip to Venice and actually experienced um, what happens in this movie and what happens in this novella, um, where he genuinely fell in love with a uh, too young uh, young man who was a Polish aristocrat um, uh, in the seventies. I think it would come out uh, a lot of. Um, Tomas Mann's personal diaries would come out and he had longings, even though he was married and had like six or seven kids. Uh, Tomas Mann had longings for men and specifically had longings for really young men, um, although it's not sure that he acted on either one of those impulses. But so Tomas Mann goes to Venice mourning Mahler and then while in Venice has this very like sudden and very deep uh, uh, and noticeable obsession with a young man. Both his wife, both uh, both Tomas Mann's wife and the young man remembered it um, uh, years later. 
And so a very noticeable mm. thing. And so this really happens. Then when uh, Tomas Mann writes the novella, it is, uh, it is um, an author who is doing it. So he's, you know, it's more similar to himself in the novella. Um, but he brings in Mahler's life in that, no, it wasn't Mahler's, it's Mahler's life in the movie, but in the novella, it's more Tomas Mann's life. But what he has is very conveniently, the wife has died young. And so the wife isn't present in the novella because she died young, but, you know, um, Gustav von Aschenbach isn't mourning any children being lost. Then you get to the movie, and the movie brings it much closer to Gustav Mahler's life in that Gustav von Aschenbach is a composer instead of a writer. Um, and also because Mahler had actually had one of his daughters had passed away in, I think, 1907. And it was a very similar situation where you can see they're in like they're in like a nice house uh, uh, by some water, and like it almost looks like a vacation house. They uh, the Mahler family moved, and then scarlet fever or rubella or something like that. Uh, one of the daughters died, and so that that actually happened in Mahler's life. That's what's happening here. What's interesting is there is really no explanation where Gustav and Aschenbach's wife has gone in the movie. Um, is she also passed on or have they split up or does he just need time by himself, um, you know, to work through some things? It's unless, unless somebody has seen something that I haven't seen in the movie and I've seen it now, you know, I think I'm going on my third watch. So I certainly could have missed something unless somebody's seen something that I'm missing. Yeah. The, the wife is just, it's unexplained why she's not around. That was really interesting talking through Mahler and, Gustav in the novel. That was a that was a good summary. <laughs> Thank you for walking through that. Did you wait? Did you read the no, the novella as well? No, I would have liked to, and I just didn't get a chance. Oh no, it's a, you don't you don't have homework. I just I just am sort of obsessive about this stuff, and I was like, I really need to, I really need to read that now that the now that the movie's out, and so, and you know, plus it's so it's short, so um, it's easier to get me to read a book when it's really short. <laughs> when I think it's old enough where it's public domain, so it should be easy to find. Yeah. Oh, and something that I thought was interesting, kind of back on the family side, um, kind of in terms of one of the moments from the movie that stuck the most with me in terms of making an impression was that first dinner or hanging out at the hotel lounge when Gustav first sees Tadzo and he's just kind of looking around the room at everybody doing their thing. And he notices a mother and daughter who kind of look like his wife and daughter. And he's kind of transfixed on them. And then the camera pans over and you see the rest of the family, which we find out includes Tadzo. Well, so I'm obsessed with that, which, dude, talk about Visconti, man. Just we, we should... During that scene, like when you're at home watching that film, you should just stand up and clap because what what <laughs> an amazing subjective use and it's there's so many amazing things about that first of all it's it's what visconti is doing is saying hey audience you're in my realm now i am going to do an 8 minute roving camera scene i think it's 2 minutes before we ever get to see tadzio even for a second 
Um, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show this room and these people and these women and their hats. And this is just what you're what you're in for. You're going to settle in, and you're gonna realize you are in this room and you are looking out of the eyes of Gustav von Aschenbach. And it's such a it's such a baller move. It's like who who does that? And so. And then when you finally do settle in, you're absolutely right. And I hadn't noticed this the first few times I'd seen it. You do, I think you do notice like, okay, I'm being, time is real, movie time is really slowing down right now is one of the first things anybody notices. And it does, it really brings you into the space inside of this uh, uh, grand hotel in, in Venice. The, but then what you notice is that, yeah, no, the first person that really catches his attention, I think, is a young girl. And it's, it isn't the mother right away because it's the young girl and then her um, oh, what, headmistress, you know, the like teacher, babysitter. Oh, yeah. And then it's a couple of other young girls, but they all sort of look like. We'll find out later in the film. They all sort of look like Gustav von Aschenbach's daughter. But it's interesting. He doesn't have an emotional reaction to those young women. He doesn't. It's not like that. He, his grief doesn't. It, it's almost like he can't allow himself to feel the grief when he sees those young women. It's, an, it's not until he sees Tadzio, who, by the way, is like draped over his chair. The daughters are all forced to sit prim <laughs> and proper. But he is like... He, yeah, he is like a part of the furniture there. He owns the entire place. Um, and it's, it isn't until Gustav sees Tadzio that he has any sort of reaction and engages with them. But absolutely, when Silvi- Silvana Mangano, oh, I probably just butchered her name, um, when the mother comes in, the Polish aristocrat, who is... Um, Visconti claims that the reason why he liked her so much in his movies because uh, she reminded him of his own mother. Um, when she comes in, it totally ups the ante for Gustav. Now, if he was already like slightly paying attention to Tadzio and the family, now with her coming in, it's a whole different level because now it's... And then when you think of it that way, it gets confusing, right? It's like, what does Gustav want from this boy? Does he want to be with the boy? Does he want to be the boy or does he want to be the boy's father? Um, I think it's primarily the first two. I don't think he really wants to father him. <laughs> I think he wants to be him or be with him. But when Silvana Mangano comes in, there is an aspect of does he want to be this woman's son or does he want to be does he want to be like the father in this family? And it's such a it's such a mishmash of conflicting emotions. It's wonderful. It's, and you're absolutely right. It, when she comes in, it completely adds a different level of adrenaline to his reaction. When I think that's a good point in terms of what role does he want to play in terms of Tadzo or the family? Because I can't help but think of that in terms of Tadzo because he's basically giving back everything Gustav is giving mm-hmm. him. So you wonder, what does Tadzo want out of this? Is he all? Is he looking for a lover in him? Is he looking for a father figure? Because there isn't a dad running around with the rest of the family, right? You know, and so there could be a whole host of roles, or yeah, it's super. It yeah, but is he looking? It's for super it? interesting. It, so this part of it is super interesting. So I imagine if I was 
So I'm a, I'm a heterosexual dude from 2019. But I was wondering, like, and I've seen this uh, listening to people talk about Death in Venice, listening to people talk about, like, Solo, you know, uh, people who were young gay men in the 70s who would, like, anytime they would hear there was, like, a major release movie that had this aspect in it, they would want to go see it. And I was thinking, like, what would my reaction be if I was, if I was like, a gay guy in the 70s seeing Death in Venice in New York City on the big screen? Would there be a part of me that would think, like, oh, that reminds me of my youth? Or would there be a part... Because my reaction now... My reaction now is essentially, this is all in Gustav's head. Like, there's a part of me that from reading the novella and just, like, the... It doesn't seem realistic to me that if he's if he's 15, Tazio's reactions seem realistic. If he's 10, it seems like we have an unreliable narrator. Like Gustav is so smitten with this boy, he's willing to explode any, you know, he's willing to make up in his own mind any interaction with this person, you know. And this is certainly something I experienced, right? Like I just went over to um, to get some coffee before this before we recorded this episode, and there's a very beautiful young woman that's working the register. And she, we're talking about, um, you know, it's an Australian coffee place, and so they have, like, Australian meat pies. And so we're talking about meat pies, and I'm totally thinking she's flirting with me. I have no idea <laughs> if there's any basis in reality with that, um, you know. But uh, the difference here is that I've had, I've had open flirtations my entire life with, you know, with my gender or preference. And this guy you kind of get the sense that Gustav, this is the first time. Like, this is... It doesn't feel like he has a long history of having open access to this side of his personality. It seems like this is... This is it. Like, this is the... You know, this is the dam is broken <laughs> for him. And so would he have any clue about about reading other people's cues correctly? I have a little bit of skepticism about it. When I see Tadzio... And I see the way that uh, uh, Tazio acts. Um, there's a part of me that's like, I, I roll my eyes a little bit. I'm like, that's all in Gustav's head. So I don't know if, I don't know if that's been your same interpretation. And I often make very specific interpretations of movie which are not necessarily based in fact. Um, but that w- that is always that has been the way I've sort of watched this movie so far. I don't know if you have sort of a different take on it. Yeah. Well, I think not like it makes it any less icky. But I kind of think Tadzio is open to or is kind of acknowledging whatever connection they have going on. You know, because looking yep. at his relationship with the other and young so man you... who looks a little older, like maybe 16 oh, yeah. or something, like not quite Tadzio's age. But there definitely seems to be some kind of, even if it's more, you know, maybe they're not the love of each other's lives, but you get the sense that there's some kind of flirtatious slash romantic component to whatever that relationship is yeah absolutely Uh, that would make so much more sense to me if Tadzio was the age of the actor like if Tadzio was 15 years old heck yeah right like there's so many in my high school at least there were so many age inappropriate relationships but like 15 for me feels like that's a much more that like that would make more sense that Tadzio would be potentially reciprocating Rather than if he was ten, like that seems that seems like a a bit of a stretch to me, and something that maybe Gustav is amplifying in his own head. But like I said, I make up all sorts of all sorts of interpretations of movies where like the directors themselves will come out and be like, "No, that's that's ridiculous." So <laughs> I need to be careful of over interpreting it. Um, yeah, no, 
if Tadzio is like if Tadzio is genuinely reciprocating all that attention, that is a that is of and if he is in that younger range, um, that is a super interesting aspect of their relationship. Um, I also wonder sometimes that Gustav looks at the relationship that Tadzio has with one of his uh, one of his boyfriends. Um, with it, he has like a flirtatious relationship with a young man his age, and I wonder if Gustav looks at that and is like totally insanely jealous of you know the fact that that uh, Tazio gets to gets to openly flirt with another boy. Um, I you know the way that perhaps Gustav had wished that he could have interacted with Alfred, for instance. Oh, I, I completely agree. I was that's where I was kind of getting at. Like in like I think Tazio. I think Tadzio is open to relationships with the same gender, given that kind of flirtatious, romantic, whatever it is, relationship with the guy that's much closer to his age. Right. And so kind of if that's almost a baseline, not that this makes it right, but I could see Gustav seeing, well, okay, he's down with this guy. Is he potentially open to someone much, much older? No, and the, um, I think that that's pretty real, right? Like his, like Tadzio's relationship with the age-appropriate guy, um, you know, the kid that's his same age or maybe a little bit older. I think that that's certainly real. I don't think that that's in Gustav's head. So maybe that cuts against my sort of uh, 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 questionable narrator um, argument. So yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. And so I certainly think that that's one where. Perhaps Gustav doesn't necessarily like. I think no matter what, there's some portion of Gustav that wants to be with Tadzio. But then there's also the portion of he just wants to be Tadzio. Like he wants to have the freedom. He wants to have that relationship with Tadzio's mother to be mothered the way that um you know that woman is mothering Tadzio, as well as to have those like open fun, you know, flirtatious. He's getting dirty. He's like getting sand on himself, and he's running around in a in a onesie bathing suit. <laughs> Whereas he has to sit there and just like bake in the heat in his linen suit and he's all by himself and Tazio is just surrounded by love of men and women. Um, yeah, no, there certainly is a huge part of it that feels like he wants to be Tazio as much as he wants to be with him. Absolutely, because I think Tazio also, with the other boy, there's no sense of shame or hiding it. It's not like they're hiding in an alleyway when the other boy's giving Tadzio little pecs no. and stuff. Oh, no. So it's, you know, so it's kind of interesting given the time and place this is taking place where that kind of thing seems to be okay and socially acceptable um, to just have that happen out in the open in front of Tadzio's family even. Um, and if that is the kind of, I, so I could totally see that being the kind of life that Gustav is envious of in terms of wanting to be Tadzio. Because 40, 50 years earlier, that would, that certainly would not have been the case or been an option for Gustav if that is the way he is. Yeah, and it's interesting because in Italy, I think from 1890 to 1931, we all think of Italy as like this great Catholic, you know, super strict moral place, but, uh, you know, and, and homophobic. Um, but actually uh homosexuality was uh, was legal in italy from i think 1890 to 1931 it wasn't until the fascists came into power and did all the fascist crap that uh it was illegal again so during this time period which we're assuming is probably 1911 um it would have been legal in addition italy i think compared to you know italy is like a a mediterranean or adriatic like it's 
it's considered like the south and uh, compared to even something that's i think venice is fairly north but um compared to like the more rational the more strict um bavarian or austrian or german mindset um there certainly would be that aspect of perhaps more romantic freedom of all kinds um so yeah no i definitely think that that's a big part of what gustav is what's like What's warming his little ice heart is um, is seeing the freedom <laughs> that Tadzio has on top of the relationship he has with his mother and just how physically how physically beautiful he considers him to be. Well, that, that geography is a really good point because, yeah, Gustav being from, I forget if it's Germany or Austria, but being more north and then coming south to the Mediterranean where, you know, possibly that kind of thing is more acceptable and more open so he's he, yeah he, that's a world he's of from difference. munich which is from bavaria which 1911 oh. would bavaria already be wrapped up into germany i think yes so bavaria would already be wrapped up into germany so it's it's germany although munich in a lot of ways and bavaria in a lot of ways has more in common with austria i mean really that region it's like you know uh, uh half a do- half a dozen one six the other um but yeah, no. So when he, but when he goes south, when he goes to Venice, there is this idea. There, there is this romantic ideal of it being more of a place of freedom and like hot-blooded southern. It's not that far south, but you know the hot-blooded, the hot-blooded southerner and the Mediterranean lifestyle. And so it is, I think, considered more. Interestingly enough, so this area, the Lido in in Venice, which is like um. I think it's a 11 kilometer. I looked this up, so I'm not just coming up with this. It's an 11 kilometer uh, sandbar, essentially, in Venice. It is also the place where the first beach resort was set up in Europe. So this was like the first of its kind. Um, oh, yeah. that's interesting history. Yeah. Well, I like interesting facts. I, I, I like I like the trivia. I think that's a big part of the reason why I like Visconti so much is because there's so much sophistication so much literature so much history that he packs into uh every one of his every one of his films that you you know you get to pick up little things here and there well and then kind of another while we're talking about the lido and more of the geography an image that was really striking towards the end of the film and i'm sure it made an impression on you too is like the last time we see tadzio he's walking away on the beach in a very very shallow end but it looks like he's walking on water, like he's almost displaying like Christ-like qualities, you know, as Gustav's final vision of him right before Gustav kicks the bucket. Oh, oh, um, yeah. No, the iconography of Tadzio at the end is, I mean, if you wanted to get a Ph.D. in film, you could certainly write a thesis on the iconography of Tadzio. Um, at this point... <sighs> Oh gosh! So Nietzsche is big in the background. So the uh, Apollonian versus the Dionysian, and just the idea of the rational versus the irrational, chaos versus order. And so here he looks almost like a little sun god. You know, he's um, he's he's posing. <laughs> he does he does some pose <laughs> that I don't know. Is that a bodybuilder pose or? Or like some like some statue from you know some Grecian statue, uh, and and yeah, the sun begins to um, he be, it, it's almost as if Gustav is being blinded by the sun and being blinded by this by Tadzio. Um, certainly, I hadn't noticed the walking on water image, but yeah, that's absolutely there too. And he certainly has some aspect of the Christ figure and his mother as the the Mary figure, right? 
Um, certainly in that first time we see him, he is shot in profile almost like he's from some, you know, he's like a young Christ from some um, Renaissance painting. Um, and But then, so there is all this iconography, but right before that, right before that, there's that heartbreaking experience of the boy, the boy that Tadzio has had his flirtations with um, on the beach. Um, they fight. And they fight, I presume, because Tadzio's leaving and because, you know, he's, he's upset about it leaving. And instead of, like, expressing his emotion in a, in a healthy way, as, as boys and even sometimes men can do, uh, he expresses his disappointment and sadness through, <laughs> you know, through an unhealthy way. And he, <laughs> it's almost like he, like, dashes. It's almost like that part in Gustav that has been beaten up. And has like he sort of blocked out like it's almost like we watched that potentially happen to Tadzio, like uh, uh, as as the boy is like pushing his face down into the mud and, um, but we see Tadzio get up and I don't this is clearly end is not good for Gustav, but I don't see this as a bad ending for Tadzio like I see Tadzio, um, living on and having like real joy in his life and having to have, you know, getting to have access to all the different parts of his personality and his sexuality and like whatever it is that's coming in, you see him sort of resilient. And he's, I don't think he's destroyed by that interaction with the boy. And he does go on and look like, you know, some image of pure Grecian beauty. Meanwhile, <laughs> we have Gustav, who is the opposite. And Gustav sees this vision. I don't know if it's real or just totally in Gustav's head. I think here I think here there's a much stronger argument to say that, like, you know, perhaps in the flirtations, a real strong argument to say that this is something going on really inside of Gustav, not necessarily out in the world. But Gustav is having this vision, and maybe it's this vision of, you know, real beauty that has both the um both sensory but also idealized and spiritualized. So it's like a combination of the two at the same time. But sadly, he is, he is you know, he's having this vision. He's having this moment of transcendence. But it's just at the same moment that he's about to expire and he's melting. He's, he's melting. Just brutal imagery. And it's such a juxtaposition. The perfect, the idealized versus um, Gustav who is, you know, that is, that is one wilted flower we're seeing. Absolutely. And kind of to your your point earlier about is Gustav fantasizing about being Tadzio and finding that mother figure in um, Mangano's character, you know, even as, as his lifeless body is being carried away, you can see the mother and I think a couple of the other daughters too, kind of walk by and check on Gustav or see just to see what's going on. And so you almost get the sense like it's like that maternal or that maternal presence is kind of back again one last time. Mm, yeah, no, I, it's, uh, that, but I thought that was kind of an interesting bring back. No, the iconography of just the three of them is just fascinating, just fascinating. And that uh, it isn't. So we're talking about it like it's all intellectual. We're sort of making a little bit of the same mistake, <laughs> you know, that that Gustav and Aschenbach makes both in the movie and in the novella. I think it's, um, I think it's maybe even more explicit in the novella and that he's he's continuing to rationalize what is at its heart a deeply irrational experience and i think you know it's easy for me to slip into that when i talk about death and venice but on an emotional level 
this is just and the first time I saw this movie, I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. I was really on the fence with it, but there was no question. I was left genuinely devastated and genuinely moved by the ending. Basically everything after um Gustav and Aschenbach sits down in the barber's chair and you realize just how desperate he is and just how beyond beyond redemption he sort of is, um, at least in the bodily sense. And uh, you know, how in love he is with Tadzio, and then he goes and it's just Watching him melt, watching that ink drop from his head. There's no blood I've seen in yeah. any film which is more upsetting or more profound in terms of, you know, uh, the the weakness of the body um, that hit me the, quite the way that that did. So the iconography is absolutely there, but it is also like it works. It works as a genuine like emotional connection um, at that point with with the uh, with the pain and the death that Gustav is feeling. That's a great call. I feel like I'm learning a lot about this movie and a lot about my opinions about this movie from uh, from 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 your thoughts on it for sure. Oh no! I likewise, I feel like I'm getting a, a history lesson. It's terrific. <laughs> There's so much stuff. There's a lot of Wikipedia pages I still need to read. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really passionate about this movie, so you have to forgive me if I'm if I'm ranting. It's just it, there's so much in this, and no, I love it. And I've gone through I've gone through a bit of a transformation on my attitude towards the film and my ideas towards the film, and you know what I'm willing to accept and what I'm what I reject. And there's a part of me that's coming to this movie now and just sees it as like this is this is a symphonic masterpiece put under film. I think Wagner had a phrase. And I'm not even going to try to say it, but the idea of the total work, you know, where the music and the architecture and the character and the plot and the photography and just, you know, in terms of like applying it to a film scenario, um, the idea of just putting everything in the film to the service of the overall work and not just having isolating one quality of the film. This movie feels like it is the, you know, it is all of the different things that Visconti wants to put into a film just in service of the overall effect of the film without necessarily isolating and highlighting any one thing. And, uh, yeah, no, so I'm, I, I get pretty passionate talking about this movie. Absolutely. And, like, we were joking earlier about how there's hardly any dialogue in this, but this is such a movie where it is that full cinematic package you know, every element from the costume to the cinematography and absolutely the music, you just, it's so fully loaded and it's such an experience that goes beyond the page of the 10 page screenplay. <laughs> um, it's just something you experience and live along with Gustav. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is your, what is your feeling on this movie? I, where do you, do you put this as a, as a masterpiece? Do you put this as you know, just a really good film. What what are your what is your sense of this movie, at least now? Yeah, <clears throat> right now I would call it like really good film. I've only seen it once, mm-hmm. um, and Visconti, I'm still getting used to. I really like um, Le Notti Bianche. Oh, White nice. That one's my favorite of his. His the historical dramas, I need to visit more. Um, but I know he's a really important director, and there's a lot, you know, like we've already talked about so far. There's so much baked into his movies that I know I need to revisit them and study them more. Um, but I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. 
Well, now it's getting significantly easier, right? With the, I think it's Arrow released the Ludwig and, you know, Criterion has uh, Note Bianche. It has uh, Senso. Now it has Death in Venice. It has The Leopard. Um, Rocco from Masters of Cinema, if you have, if you're region free. But I think that there are other versions of Rocco out there. So, Oh, I think Cohen put it oh, out. Oh, nice. I have, I have Rocco also and I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, so there's... But you know that one's important. There's real access, and plus you can stream Bellissima and Conversation Piece and La Terra Trauma. So, you know, there's real access to his movies now. I think in a way that people didn't have access for a long time. So you get to have a slower, you know, lifelong relationship with Visconti films. Not everybody needs to, you know, rewatch them twice in the span of six months the way that I have. Um, and that I think you may even get like a fuller, more fuller experience as you as you watch it over time and see how your reactions to each of the films change. So I, I envy you a bit. Um, as Visconti's go, where does this one fall for you? Like, which one's your top? Oh, or yeah. What's your benchmark? So this has changed just in the last six months, right? Like I went through I watched 12 of the 14. I recently added The Stranger. I watched 12 of the 14 prior to I did a two episode uh, podcast with Matt Gasteyer and we went over the entire Visconti filmography over five hours and oh, I watched man. all of his movies up until that point other than two, so I watched 12 of his 14 feature length films I watched a few of his shorter films that were parts of an, uh, anthologies um, and I watched all this stuff and just the first time and so I had one ranking that time and and Death in Venice was near the bottom for me I did see it in film. I did see it at the movie theater. I did not know what the movie entailed or what the what the story of the novella is other than I knew a guy died in Venice. And so when I first watched it, I just sort of scratched my head. It's really slow. Um, the storyline is it's kind of hard to identify <laughs> with, with Gustav Van Aschenbacher or identify with really sure. anybody in the movie the first time you watch it. And I just didn't, I just didn't really get it. And I, but I did know that the ending was like the ending was truly powerful. And it, the, his death scene was genuinely moving to me. And that's not normal. I typically, you see so many movies there, you know, you see so many main characters um, die. It's like, uh, you know, a good portion of the time you're just like, oh, that's just, you know, this is just movie, a movie trope or just something that happens in a movie. But for this one, yeah, it totally hit me. Maybe it's the maybe it's the Mahler playing in the background. Maybe it's the I love the um, God's eye view of it. But anyways, so that's a long way to say I like some parts of it at the beginning, but overall I put it at the bottom of my Visconti pile. Now I see it, and I have recently upgraded this to a five star. One of my favorite Visconti films. And oh wow! Yeah, I really enjoy the way that he incorporates so like so seamlessly all the different aspects of movie making. Um, and I, you know, yeah, I just I just think that this movie is so wonderful. It's so sad and it's so mournful. And his movies all have a strain of that, a strain of you know, um, history is passing us by, and our our time on Earth is quite short. But this one is so just, it's just that feeling and nothing really to, like, there's no real catharsis. There's no real distraction from just that pure feeling of it. Um, 
And I don't know if that's something I want to visit a ton. Like, I don't know if that's particularly an enjoyable experience, but the way that he does it, the technical just perfection that I see, um, it just, yeah, no, I, I think that this movie is, is pretty close to perfect in what it's trying to achieve. Um, so I now put this near the top. I'd say it's in my top five. Um, I do really prefer the historical um, dramas. I think I think I think the the leopard, the damned, and I think this is my number five. I think I have the leopard, the damned, conversation piece, and now another movie I used to have at the bottom, but I've now put at the top. Senso, I think, are my top four, mm. and this is probably my number five. But I genuinely believe that all five of those films are five-star masterpieces. So I really love Visconti. There are a few other directors, um, you know, that make 14 movies, and at least five of them are masterpieces. Absolutely. And it's such a short time span, too. Yeah, I mean... These are all within, like, a decade, 15 years of each other? Well, so he's, his first movie was actually... So he's an interesting cat because he was also crucial to neorealism. And... So he his first movie was a Sessione, and that was 1943. But so like, and his last movie was I think 1975, the um, the Innocent. And so oh oh yeah, I meant your top five. Oh, oh yeah, those five yeah, star oh, ones are all real oh, tight, yeah. right? So I prefer his operatic films. I prefer his operatic films. His neo-realist films like Rocco and um, you know La Terra Trema. They're they're great. They're great. But for me, give me, give me more, give me that, give me that like opera aesthetic um, of just insane attention to detail, music perfectly matched to what you're seeing on the screen. Um, you know, I really enjoy like the big epics, and also I really enjoy Death in Venice and just how, just how focused uh, the emotion is in this. For sure, that was great. Um... Kind of wrapping up, what do you think is your major takeaway or your lesson learned from this movie? <laughs> oh, my lesson learned. What's the moral of the story? My lesson learned. <laughs> uh, my lesson learned with, uh, so, and Visconti, I don't know if he puts in lessons. I mean, perhaps his lesson is that you can't escape. You know, everything rots. <laughs> the world rots. Uh, uh, societies and governments rot. And people's bodies certainly do. Um, but I think actually he does this thing and I don't know if he gets this from opera. I don't know if he gets this from his love of death in Venice, but somewhere along the line he came up with, he wants every character in his movie to make a decision or every major character in his movies to make a decision, which will ultimately lead to their downfall and decisions, which are plainly and obviously self-destructive on the face of it, you know? You know that stereotype of, like, the person in the movie theater that says, like, oh, no, don't go in there, and then the person, you know, in the movie goes in there, <laughs> and then they get killed, uh -huh. and they said, I told you so. Well, that moment happens in every single Visconti film where you're looking at the person, the man or the female, and saying, don't stay in Venice. There's <laughs> cholera everywhere. Yeah. You're going to die. Or you're going to commit this, you know, this this sin that you know this great taboo um, with a way too young man. Um, you know, you just want to scream at everybody in a Visconti film not to do it. And uh, yeah, it's get out when you can. It's don't double down when you know the place is dying. Maybe just get out ahead of time. 
Um, that's my <laughs> that's my takeaway. What's your what's your take what's your takeaway from this? Um, for me, something I really admire in terms of storytelling is when your main protagonist or the situation you're stuck in, you know, kind of like what you're saying about the rationality, but when you're with someone who you know is either bad or is thinking about something that they should not be doing, but you as the audience member are stuck with them because they're the main character and you're forced to be with them for this two hour journey. You're forced to identify with them or at least try to understand them, which is very challenging to do for someone as kind of demented as Gustav is. And I like the, it's gutsy to make a movie that asks its audience to do that. And I really admire Visconti kind of pushing us and taking us there. Cause I think that's not an easy thing to do. Right. I mean, you do, you genuinely are in his perspective. The camera looks at Tadzio like he is, uh, you know, just the most drop dead gorgeous human on the face of the earth. And you can't like, you can't, you can't get out of it if you're watching the movie. We are trapped in Gustav's subjective perspective, and it is it is it, the first time I watched it, it was a little bit uncomfortable. I think now I you know I know what's I know what's coming, and it's you know I'm watching for all these different elements, and it's but yeah no there the, that's definitely it was like a bold choice. And Visconti's lucky this movie ever saw the light of day. I mean, part of it is because he is an aristocrat. <laughs> the queen. I think I read somewhere that uh, Queen Elizabeth did a fundraiser for a premiere of this film, and so I think with sort of the imprimatur, Holy yeah, cow. exactly. <laughs> and so I think Visconti sort of pulled some str- some aristocratic strings to uh, to you know to get people to look at this as a sophisticated piece of art, rather than like you said, like some demented, you know. Um, uh, demented uh, uh, fever, lo- uh, you know, love story. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a bold choice, and I, I honestly, I'm glad. I'm I'm glad that this. I'm glad we get to we get to see this film. And I'm glad we get to see this transgressive um, symphony um, play out. And uh, you know, while you wouldn't wish this sort of destructive infatuation on anybody, and obviously, you want to protect Tadzio. Um, the way that this movie explores just things that are just fundamentally human in this, you know, in this very specific taboo way, I actually find really powerful. So, um, you know, it's edgy, but, but you can't be into, you can't be into the really good art house film or the really good literature without, without, um, without confronting some of the, some of the darker or, um, I don't know some of some of those other aspects of of humanity that most of us don't bump into in our regular day to day. Absolutely, and I think it's admirable that you know someone as kind of morbidly questionable as Gustav is. The movie's not presenting because it's through his eyes. It's never judging him in the text or explicitly. Like it, it to trust the audience to. I mean, not like we're being asked to judge him, but. We're, we're being given his perspective kind of cleanly and it's up to us to make our own conclusions or judgments around him. And it's not, it's not like a moral tale from that sense. Well, if you think about how controversial Lolita was, um, Kubrick made it very clear that um, 
what's his name, Humper Humperdink or something? Whatever, whatever the main character's name is that's pursuing Lolita in the film. Like, it's very clear that he's a bad dude. And it's very clear that he is morally wrong. Um, like, there's no, like, there's no question there. Here, it's totally not like that. Like, there is no... Oh, there, sure. I mean, obviously, he's, 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 he's going to expire. And obviously, I, I, I don't think that, like, Visconti is advocating for this. But his experience is not really viewed through that perspective. You know, there's nobody in this world, other than maybe the headmistress is sort of like, hey, you know, Tadzio, stay away from that man. For the most part, there isn't like any real, you know, there isn't some like moral agency out in this Venice that's like trying to stop this guy. Um, And we don't really like see that as something that the film is trying to say about this man. Um, And so it's a totally different experience than, say, watching Lolita, where you know that the the moral universe of Lolita is going to come v- down very hard on the people that are um, exploiting Lolita. Um, whereas here, that certainly happens. You know, uh, Gustav certainly does expire in the end. Um, but there's a big part of it where I feel sympathy. I feel empathy with this guy. There's a part of me that's screaming like, why don't you just make out with Alfred? Like, why are you sitting there? Like, this guy clearly is pining for you and has is expressing passion for you, and you clearly reciprocate. Just like kiss him, and that's that's the thing that comes to me now. And obviously, you know, feeling bad for when his when his daughter dies, and you see that 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 domestic home life that he had that he loved. He what? That's another interesting thing about this movie. Gustav was in love with his wife. Like, you see that home of that blissful home where he's like playing with his daughter and his wife. It's not like this is a guy who was forced to lead a life that he hated. He had a life that was filled with love and affection and um, whatever that, whatever that life was, I, you know, I don't know. Um, But there was a lot of happiness there and it's gone now. And now this other part of him that he wants to, he, he, that is a really important part of him. uh, He's just, he's just shut off and it just cut the light turns on at this last moment. And one, it is, wildly inappropriate and uh probably illegal but two it's also like it's also like too little too late you know his he's he's not going to live to see the day where he can go back to alfred you know and and embrace him the way that he wants to we're not going to see the moonlight ending here it's just it's just not going to happen for this guy and there is a lot of empathy in that i think for me there is when i wonder if that's sort of what drives his decision to stay in venice even when it doesn't make rational sense for his health But maybe knowing what waits for him back home is not is not equal to the fantasy he's built out for himself down here. So might as well keep seeing that through. Yeah, no, that's a, that's again, that's a, that's something I've thought a bit about. But I really like your explanation better than better than the explanation I had for that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good call. Kind of based on this one, is there another film you would recommend um, with similar themes or ideas um, to this one? Sure. So <laughs> I feel so I I feel bad, Stephen. Uh, you, you this is uh, this is like one of my hot button movies. I have so much to say and so much I'm still thinking through. Um, so when you ask me for like just one movie, I have like three recommendations. So I apologize oh, no. for cheating. You're an overachiever. <laughs> so here are my three. So. The most obvious one that I saw right away, because of the way that uh, oh, the way that Visconti shoots uh, the alleyways of Venice, is I immediately thought of "Don't Look Now," and also "Don't Look Now" has that aspect of memory and loss, loss of a daughter, 
And so if you want to see it, oh, you want to see a different version of Venice sort of works as like a time tunnel, right? Like it's a place where you go there and because it is a it is a city that is dying. It is a city that has a long history and you can see that history and the decay that's going on. Um, it sort of transport transports people back in time and you see that uh, same thing done slightly differently and don't look now. And so for people that want to see that sort of Venice film again, check out Don't Look Now. Then you have, if you're thinking, okay, so I want to see more Visconti, uh, there is another Visconti Venetian film, Senso, and it has similar shots of some of the alleyways of um, Venice, although that movie is much more romantic. That is his first pure opera film, Um, and for me, I think it is, I think it's his most Visconti film. And so I definitely recommend Senso for people that want more Visconti and want more of that. And it's a nice little comparison. But then I almost view Call Me By Your Name as a form of an optimistic sequel to this film. <laughs> I see that as uh, I almost see the father of Timothy Chalamet's character. I almost see the father of Timothy Chalamet's character as Gustav van Aschenbach. Uh, if Gustav hadn't died and had gone on to like lead like a relatively healthy, although cloistered life. And then I see like the the next generation, you know, it's a little bit also of an illicit love affair, although it's not it's not it you know, I think it's legal in that area and while it's a different age, it's like you wouldn't say it's anywhere nearly as age inappropriate as this film. And it's happy. Like these are two I mean it's relatively happy. There's a streak of sadness, but you see like people accepting on some level their sexuality and their family being support at least at least one family being supportive of it. In addition, it's an absolutely gorgeously shot film, although it's not in Venice, it is in Italy and um and even even the cover of the Death in Venice uh Criterion Collection release, I think harkens back to some of the um some elements of Call Me by Your Name in terms of the uh the beautiful statue that's discovered and the father goes on and talks about the erotic power and the erotic suggestiveness of the statue that's discovered at the bottom of the lake and has a similar patina as the cover of death and Venice. So I think of those three, I think the one now that I'm most fired up to watch in light of this is call me by your name. I really want to see this and sort of compare the, the pessimistic to the optimistic version. Oh, those were great. <laughs> Stay tuned for stuff about the statues and Call Me By Your Name because we talk about them a lot oh, I love in an it. upcoming episode. I love it. We'll have to do a part two with you. What is your... Um, no, I think the statues are crazy in that. What is the movie that you think of that you, you sort of pair in your head? Uh, Call Me By Your Name, perhaps? Or is it another movie? Or um, Well, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Don't Look Now because throughout this conversation, I kept thinking of that. So that's, I thought you covered that perfect. Um one for me wasn't not close to Italy as much, but just in terms of the feeling and kind of the position it puts the audience viewer in um, was dressed to kill, particularly thinking of the wordless museum scene where Angie Dickinson's character is kind of roaming around. I think it's like the New York MoMA, some art museum. And she's following around this, man maybe going to have a romantic encounter and there's this like lush beautiful um i think pino dimaggio score playing in the background and it there were it's filled with shots of 
the man she's following just being out of reach and she's turning a corner and he's just exiting the room and she enters the room she thought he was in and then it's empty and there are so many moments in death and venice like that unfortunately with gustav pursuing tadzio and he thinks he's one place and tadzio is just exiting the room and the idea of the object of your desire just being out of reach um reminded me a lot of that sequence from dress to kill as well as the musical soundtrack and kind of the this beautiful orchestral music playing when you're watching a character grapple with questionable romantic feelings you know whether it's gustav for his gustav's feeling for a child or in the case of dress to kill angie dickinson's character is like enamored with someone she doesn't know you know it's it's funny disconnect of this music that in any other movie would be romantic and we're supposed to be on the same page that this is a romance and a love worth pursuing but it's displaced with we're watching a character who's kind of mixed up in terms of who they're infatuated with um and so yeah those two elements just reminded me a lot of dress to kill um relating back to death in venice wow that is that is amazing. I love that. I think that sequence takes place in the Met. I think it takes in takes place in the Met Museum. Uh, but that sequence, I absolutely. I mean, everybody that's seen that absolutely loves it. Um, but I had never put it together with this. There is. It's like a. It's like a meme or a trope or like a lineage between. Between, I think, even like going back as far as Senso and then up to Death in Venice and then over to Don't Look Now. And then absolutely it's in Dress to Kill. I had, I had never grouped those to together. You just totally created like a new neural pathway in my brain. That is, yeah, that's I'm never going to be able to unseed that now. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, and absolutely the juxtaposition between <laughs> between elements of and that's something Visconti certainly does, I think, in the damned. If if you ever I don't know if you've seen the damned yet or not, but when when you get to that particular masterpiece of transgression, um there are elements where you're like, Why is this so beautiful and so horrific <laughs> at the same time? So I really enjoy that. What have we when it makes these kind of funny movies, at least like, so watching it by yourself, you almost want to pause it and turn to someone else and be like, we know this is weird, right? <laughs> it's like you need someone else to talk to. That's so funny. No, I, oh man, I have, I have a long history of showing, showing uh, women that I'm dating the wrong movie. <laughs> like not having any sense because I think of Blue Valentine and I just think, uh, not Blue Valentine, um, blue velvet and i just think like oh this is a masterpiece and everybody's used to like what david lynch does and then i show i showed it to two different women and uh and this clearly just shows that there's something wrong with my brain because one of them (laughs) walked out no it wasn't i showed blue velvet to one girlfriend and she walked out and then i showed (laughs) i went to see twin peaks fire walk with me with another date and she said john don't ever bring me to another david lynch film ever again (laughs) <laughs> and so I certainly have this is part of the reason why I podcast I think is because there are people who are down with um you know with movies that really cover the gamut both of like uh, uh aesthetic um you know all different types of ways of making movies from all over the world but also uh movies that 
cover the range of human experience as well, including many human experiences that are awful and terrible. And, uh, you know, and there are a lot of people who don't want that, who don't want to, um, you know, see that or don't want that as a part of their film. They just want, you know, something light and entertaining. And I am super bad at figuring out which movies are which. (laughs) (laughs) We're just too bad if there's a movie that's special or a filmmaker and you want to share that with your person, but maybe your person's not interested. (laughs) I think think often that's actually probably a good sign. (laughs) It's almost like... It's almost like good. Okay, so we can each have our own little realms, and you know, sometimes on That's Friday true. night date night will overlap. Um, but you know, Saturday morning, um, don't come into the room because yeah, I'm gonna be watching some weird stuff. Or not, don't come into the room. That makes it sound more. <laughs> That's, that makes it sound weirder than it really is. But it's like yeah, you know, you may wanna you may wanna watch Netflix on the computer Saturday morning because I'm gonna be watching. I'm gonna be watching my stuff. <laughs> Well, the first time I watched Solo was when I was in college, yeah. and I was watching it on my laptop oh. while my roommate while my roommate was having friends yeah. over. So the whole time I like I was like hiding in my room, but I was like, man, I hope no one comes. Were in. you were you watching it for a class, or was it just to uh, just to like be up on the you know the the list the the big movies or whatever? Oh yeah, I saw it for fun. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I love it. <laughs> I mean, so there, that's like the ultimate movie. That's sort of the, um, that's sort of the litmus test, right? Um, it, I mean, actually, in some ways, this movie is more challenging because Solo is so specialized and so specific that it's like you can't really emotionally engage with what's going on. Here, it's the subjective experience of this person un, like, that's caught in this. It's not even a forbidden passion. It's this, you know, it's this, it's this really like this powerful and so taboo and so like immoral, this thing that he's going through, but yet you are forced to empathize with him. And there are actually like, there are lots of components that you empathize with. I'm not empathizing with anybody in Solo. I mean, maybe the guy that gives up like the fit, you know, puts up the fist of resistance uh, in that one moment. But really for the rest of the film, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just a, this is just a beautifully immaculately made horror movie. Um, but absolutely, if you're watching that on your computer and people walk in and misinterpret what you're watching and they're like, uh, what, uh, that could certainly be awkward. Yeah. A lot of explaining to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, this is art. (laughs) You don't understand. Let me explain it to you. (laughs) Listen to my, listen to my podcast episode. I haven't done a, I haven't done a podcast episode on solo. That's like. That's like when that's like graduate level stuff. That's when you're really ready to talk about complicated issues. I just don't think I'm there yet, man. I, I think it's gonna take me a while. No, let's do it. It'll be a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. This is so wonderful, Steven. I'm really happy that you asked me to do this. This is like this is like vacation. This is fun time for me. This is this has been great. This is a movie I love, and you have so many thoughtful, like so much thoughtful perspective on this that I of different like angles I just hadn't seen. And uh, I'm gonna whenever I see it for the fourth time, I think I'm gonna bring in a lot of the points that you made. Um, and it's gonna enrich my experience even more. Well, and thank you so much for coming. This has been a ton of fun. You have me more excited just talking about the movie and excited to explore more of Visconti. And yeah, hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you so much, John. Absolutely. Uh, can I can I plug my show? Can I talk? Can, let oh, people please. know where to get in touch with me. So yeah, Film Baby Film. It's the name of the podcast. I'm also a part of Twenty Fifth Media, Twenty uh, Fifth Frame Media, with a lot of our mutual friends that I mentioned at the top of the episode. 
Uh, if you want to check me out, you can find me either uh, on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and all that good stuff um, at Film Baby Film. I also have a website, filmbabyfilm.com. And you can check me out on Twitter, although I'm not super active on that. Uh, Film Baby Film there. Film Baby Film on Instagram is basically just baby because my brother had a had a had a baby girl, and so it's just it's more baby than film. But you can certainly follow me on Instagram at Film Baby Film, and then you know Twenty Fifth Frame Media has a website and so and and a master feed too. So check that out, and you get to you know listen to a lot of other podcasts. Many of them are probably better than mine, um, and yeah, just a great bunch of film fanatics and you know steven you and i have chatted a lot but we haven't actually talked like voice to voice so this is uh this is a real treat for me yeah likewise and we should include notes to all these in the show notes as well so people can follow you 25th frame and baby film baby (laughs) for the time being Yeah, the ins- which no, the Instagram. I'm, I'm a new uncle. I totally ins- get it. Oh, she's so. I I had no idea that I was gonna. I had I've I've bonded really hard with uh my ex girlfriend's dog. Like I really love my ex girlfriend's English Springer Spaniel, <laughs> and I just have like an irrational, just immediate like I just love that dog. Whenever I see it, it's just you know there's nothing else in the room other than me and that dog. Um, I was not expecting that with, with like, obviously I knew I was going to love my niece, but man, when I met her, uh, you know, and she's so tiny and so adorable and so happy, like I totally just, just, you know, totally have, I just adore that child. And, uh, so I cannot help myself from sharing baby film, baby photos. Um, <laughs> and she's just the best. Yeah. So, so if you want to see some of that, sign up for film, baby film on Instagram, follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Steven, you're the man. This has oh. been awesome. Oh, thank you so much, Sean. Um, yeah, thank you. This has been a wonderful discussion. Um, and yeah, thank you guys for listening. If you made it an hour and a half into this. And until next time, ciao, amici. Ciao. <laughs>